This is the podcast from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy. This is the uh, message in, uh, intended for the third Sunday of the Epip- after the Epiphany, and it's taken from Jonah, the third chapter, one through five. Please check out our website, firstbaptistchurchofmadison.weebly.com. The scripture reading this morning comes from a portion of the book of Jonah, but I'm really talking about the entirety of the book. And I encourage you to read it if it uh, appeals to you to find out more. This begins in Jonah chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three-day journey across. Jonah began to enter the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, In forty days' time, Nineveh will be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw their actions, that they turned from their evil ways, he changed his mind about the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The place to begin this story isn't on the docks of Joppa. Joppa was the main seaport of Jerusalem and today is part of the city, the modern city of Tel Aviv. Neither is the place to begin this story on a vessel bound for the far off port of Tarshish. Tarshish has been speculated to be in western Spain, in fact, right where I used to live before I moved here. Tarshish was just about as far away as Jonah could have gone from the assignment God had for him. Another place where we might begin our story of the wayward prophet might be at sea upon an unforgiving storm, a tiny merchant ship tossed about by huge waves and tornadic winds struggles for its life against the tempest. That would be an interesting place to begin our story. The best place, though, to begin this story is a place every ancient Jewish reader of this story knew all too well. It is not the shores of Israel, nor upon the sea storm, or even Jonah being swallowed by some fearsome sea creature. No, the place where they began the story was far from the sea, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The place where they began the story would have been staring at the walls of Nineveh. There at the gates of the impressive capital city stood Jonah, staring at the forbidding walls, walls decorated with friezes of conquest, torture, and humiliation. The humiliation of his people. And Jonah, gazing at the walls, knows he has been called by God to go beyond the wall. He has been asked by God to extend hope, love, and grace, in his opinion, to the worst people in the world. Today, our scripture selection takes us into the book of Jonah. 
I must admit here that this book has an appeal all out of proportion to its size. When one understands that the focus is not on an outsized fish, but upon a prophet with an undersized heart, then we are on track to genuine understanding of this remarkable biblical story. It is a rather small biblical book, but it packs an incredible wallop. In fact, every year during the season of repentance on Yom Kippur, this is the book read to Jews. Whenever I speak on the message of Jonah, before I get into the actual heart of the message to God's people, I feel I must deal with the elephant, or should I say whale, in the room. Perhaps you've heard me tell this story before. It illustrates my point. Unfortunately, that part about a great fish supposed to be a whale is about as much as most people know about the book of Jonah. Biblical literacy is common even in the church. Sometimes we don't even know that much. How much? Here is something that I experienced. I was once teaching a group of teenagers when I tried to get them into this book, the book of Jonah. So I threw out a softball question, hoping to spark a deeper discussion about the actual biblical message. I asked them, who was it in the Bible who was swallowed by a great fish that some think was a whale? One teenager who had been silent, brightened up, said, Pinocchio! I had a hard time recovering from that one. Pray for me. Some days my job is so hard. Here is the truth. Jesus used to say, truly, truly, I tell you. So truly, truly, I tell you. The story of the Hebrew prophet Jonah is far more important to our theology than most realize. If we would consider the whole matter of why Jonah ran from God and why God sent him among people, a people whom he despised, then we will have a better idea what this book is all about. I don't want to shock anyone listening, but it really doesn't change the meaning of the story, whether it is a great fish, a whale, a giant squid, or Captain Nemo and the Nautilus that delivered the wayward prophet to the beach. What is most important, the point of the Bible that it's trying to make is that Jonah was sent by God to perform a mission and God's will would not be thwarted by an act of human selfishness and rebellion. What was it that God wanted Jonah to do? What was it that Jonah did not want to do? Once we ask those questions, we are on our way to really understanding this story of Jonah, as well as discovering why it is included in our holy book. Most important of all is the question, what is this story telling us about how we are to live our Christian lives in the here and now? How can the lessons aimed at an ancient Hebrew prophet apply to God's people today? Our scripture passage drawn from the book of Jonah begins almost in the middle of the story. In it, we find the central character, a man called Jonah. Jonah is a Hebrew prophet and yet has tried to avoid doing God's will. Instead, he finds himself disgorged by a monster of the deep on a deserted beach. 
After three hideous days in which he endured an unimaginably hellish adventure, he has reluctantly, grudgingly agreed to obey the will of God. And so he starts once again a journey he dreads that will take him to the hated city of Nineveh. The passage today begins with these important words. Hear them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from violence that in his is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger and so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. What was so wrong with Nineveh? Why was it about that city? Why was it they were on God's radar? Why did they need the word of the Lord? And why was Jonah so determined not to assist, even if it meant the end of his own life? These are the important questions to ask if we're going to understand the meaning of the story of Jonah. First, let's direct our attention to the object of God's redemptive love. Nineveh had a culture. It was a culture that was very real and well documented in the annals of history. Nineveh was as great a city as ever existed in the ancient world. There were more than 120,000 persons living in Nineveh, making it by the standards of that day an exceptionally large city, a capital city. Nineveh was located in Assyria on the Tigris River, approximately 500 miles northeast of Israel in modern-day Iraq. Nineveh was the symbol of overwhelming and ruthless power of empire. Now, I know I just used that word ruthless to describe the Assyrian Ninevites. I don't want you to forget that description. In just a few moments, I will tell you exactly what that meant. If you have a map in your Bible, you will notice that the city of Nineveh is far away from the closest saltwater beach. So the obvious implication is that Jonah had many weeks of travel before he would arrive at the capital city of the Assyrians. Step by step, all the way, he had time to think about what and who he would find when he arrived there. History tells us it was the 
fearsome warrior king Sennacherib who made Nineveh into a magnificent city. Nineveh was a city that followed and worshipped terrifying and violent gods. Among these was the god Asher. Because of the brutality of Asher, the Ninevites arrogant of their, became arrogant of their own superiority. The Assyrians did not require conquered peoples to take up the worship of Asher. Instead, Assyrian imperial propaganda declared that the conquered peoples had been abandoned by their gods. They might say, see, your puny gods have done nothing to preserve you, but our terrible and vengeful god Asher has made us your conquerors. As he arrived the city and at the city and saw the walls, it would have been likely that Jonah read, inscribed upon the walls a declaration called the prism of Shennacherib. Surely Jonah paused long enough to read what the ruler of Nineveh wrote concerning his own people. The Jews carved into stone was a vicious boast. It proclaimed Jewish inferiority. History has preserved its announcement. As for Hezekiah the Judahite, who did not submit to my yoke, I destroyed 46 of his strong-walled cities as well as the small towns in the area which were without number. By leveling with battering rams and bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot by mines, tunnels, and breaches. I besieged and took them, 200,150 people, great and small, male and female, horses, mules, asses, camels, cattle, and sheep without number. I deported them. I made them slaves. I destroyed their culture and their religion and counted it as spoil. Historian Will Durant describes the, in excruciating detail the kind of brutality inflicted upon the Hebrews. I must warn you, though, this is not pleasant, but it is important if we are to understand the feelings of Jonah. Here, then, is what actually happened. A captured city was usually plundered and burnt to the ground. Its site was deliberately crippled for the future by killing its trees. The loyalty of the Assyrian troops was secured by dividing a large part of the spoils among them. Their bravery was ensured by the general practice of the Near East that all captives in war might be enslaved or slain. Soldiers sent from the Ninevite capital were rewarded for every severed head they brought in from the field so that the aftermath of a victory generally witnessed the wholesale decapitation of fallen foes. Most often the prisoners who would have consumed too much food in the long campaign and would have constituted a continual danger and nuisance in the Assyrian army's rear were dispatched after the battle. Jewish men, women, and even children were made to kneel with their backs to their captors who one by one beat their heads, beat in their heads with clubs or cut them off with swords. Ninevites, scribes stood by to count the number of killed and of the prisoners taken by each soldier and apportioned the payment accordingly. The Assyrian king, if time permitted, joyfully presided at the slaughter. The high-born Jews, the nobles among the defeated, were given special treatment. These Jews, these people of the God of Judah, 
were taken from the ranks, their ears, noses, and hands, and feet were sliced off. Others were thrown from high towers, and others suffered indescribable agony as they watched their children beheaded or flayed alive or roasted over a slow fire before they themselves endured the same. One Assyrian general bragged, and this is a direct quote from history, I burned 3,000 captives with fire. I left not a single one among them alive to serve as a hostage. Another of his inscriptions reads, These warriors who had sinned against Ashur and had plotted evil against me from their hostile mouths, have I torn their tongues? I've compassed their destruction. As for the others who remained alive, I offered them as a funerary sacrifice. Their lacerated members I gave to the dogs, the swine, the wolves. By accomplishing these deeds, I have rejoiced the hearts of the great gods. Another Ninevite monarch instructs his artisans to engrave upon the bricks these claims for the admiration of posterity. The war chariots crush men and beasts. The monuments which I erect are made of human corpses from which I have cut the heads and limbs. I cut off the hands of all those whom I capture alive. Stone engraved reliefs at Nineveh showed men being impaled or flayed or having their tongues torn out. One shows the king gouging out the eyes of Hebrew prisoners with a lance while he holds the heads conveniently in place with a cord passing through their lips. That's pretty awful, isn't it? To say these Ninevites were sinful people doesn't quite capture how it was in reality. Now just try and imagine how Jonah felt as he entered this terrible city of these terrible people. Was he thinking of his loved ones who had perished under the evil perpetuated by the Assyrians in the name of their vile god Asher? Now at last. The God of the Jews, Yahweh God, was threatening to destroy this sinful place along with all of its sorry citizens. And it was about time. They had it coming to them. But wait, the prophet is told to bring a different message. It is shocking news for Jonah. God does not want to send his vengeance upon them. He wants them to repent. He wants them to deeply and profoundly turn from their wickedness and so avoid the wrath to come. And if they will do that, God will shed his grace upon them. God will forgive them. That is where the story begins. That's the part of the mission that Jonah can't accept. You see, he wants them to go to hell. He wants God to pay them back for their crimes. He wants nothing to do with their salvation. The hatred he feels toward them is well-deserved and justice demands their total annihilation. Jonah does not want to even give them the chance to repent. Jonah wants vengeance, revenge. Jonah wants to see them suffer. But a strange thing happened on the way to their destruction. They believed The Ninevites changed their minds. They were reborn. They agreed with God about their sin. They obeyed and changed, and disaster was averted. Of course Jonah was angry. He made a sorry evangelist, and the book ends that way, leaving us to ponder some questions. While the setting for the story in Act 1 ends in the belly of a great fish, and Act 2 in the city of Nineveh, in the final act there is simply Jonah, left alone with his bitterness. 
In the end, the lesson is implied. The reader is challenged to ask some very profound questions. Questions like, am I willing to do God's will whenever, wherever, and to whomever he chooses? Another way to phrase this is to ask, what is my Nineveh? The difference between righteousness and self-righteousness is important to understand. The righteous understands that all have sinned. The self-righteous only sees the sin of others. I wonder what if Jonah would have joined the Ninevites as they sat in sackcloth and ashes. What if we would do the same with those who have sinned against us and so live the words uttered by Christ. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. One thoughtful pastor tried to answer that. I quote Stephen Molin. Nineveh might not be a place or a people. Our Nineveh might be an idea or a way of thinking. God might be calling you to open up your mind to change your position on something controversial. You think of yourself as principled, but maybe you're just stubborn, like Jonah. Even when you think that God might be nudging you in a new direction, you can't give up the old. You can't abandon your very righteous ship. To do so would be to align with the enemy, those Ninevites. It might be your position on war or on homosexuality or on immigration or on divorce or perhaps race. And you simply cannot change. You think you hold a position on these issues. But maybe the position is holding you. Or maybe Nineveh is some personal habit, some secret sin that has crept into your life. And while you sense God is calling you from it, you don't want to change. You have yielded and it has felt good. Every time God calls you to Nineveh, you get on a boat and head the other way. What would it cost you to change your lifestyle? But perhaps a more pertinent question is, what will it cost you to remain the same? Therapists say there are only two things that can make us change our ways. One is love. The other is pain. And if your choices today are causing you pain or keeping you from love, then perhaps it is time to go to Nineveh. All of this story leads us to a question. What is mercy? What does it mean to be merciful? How can we be merciful in a world that is swayed more by vengeance and retribution? These are the questions that haunt us. You see, they are not easy questions to answer. The more we know about Jonah, the more we know about ourselves. He seems to us now as less of a bigoted oddball and more like a logical patriot. We might even argue in his defense, he had good reason for not wanting anything good to come to his enemies. But a strange thing happened beyond the wall, and it was a question. Who is this God I serve? Sometimes God is moving in ways that we cannot fully comprehend. Sometimes he moves in people who seem as far removed from his kingdom as a group of idol-worshiping pagans. If there was ever a cautionary tale about judging others, then this is certainly it. You see, just as God had been moving in the hearts of the wicked Ninevites prior to Jonah's arrival, so too he is moving in the hearts of those we deem outside of God's grace. So be careful in your judgments. Do not be so fast 
God is speaking to them too. The title of this message today is Beyond the Wall. And on the other side, we find a God who redeems. This is the nature of our God. We know our Lord was well familiar with the message of this bit of Hebrew literature. In fact, Jesus alludes to Jonah's experience as a comparison to his own when he says, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. There is much that I could comment upon about this quote from Matthew 12, but let me focus on one singular thought. Both Jonah and Jesus were called by God to go into the very heart of darkness and offer forgiveness, restoration, and hope. Both experienced three days of hellish darkness on their journey, and both, when they reach their destinations, are met with suspicion and surprise. But Jonah and Jesus will preach, urging people to return to the kingdom of God. But then the comparison breaks down. Jonah does not want the Ninevites to repent and be saved. He wants them to burn in hell. But Jesus is different. He prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He offers grace and hope to his enemies, be they Romans or Jewish religious authorities or thieves or his own faithless disciples or you or me. The question is put to us once again, do I deserve, do I serve the God who redeems. Who will we follow? Who will you follow? Will you go beyond the wall? As a church, we are called on a great mission. We are called to go forth with a message of grace. We might be tempted to think of those who are most like us as the ones for whom we should offer a word of hope and acceptance. But it's really the opposite. We are to find those with whom we have little in common. Perhaps they are even openly hostile to the gospel. They may have habits, attitudes, and opinions that we cannot countenance. But God loves them. He wants us to go to them, initiate contact, get to know them and like them. He does not expect us to save them. That's his business. But he does want us to present a choice a choice in thinking and behavior. And we are to love them no matter what they choose to do. Who knows? Perhaps that is all it takes. Our presence, our love, our willingness to share, our mercy beyond the wall. We can, of course, be merciful because mercy has been shown to us. The ultimate lesson of the book of Jonah still applies. A strange thing happened on the way to our destruction. Someone showed up beyond our walls and loved us maybe many times. And because of that expressed love, we found our way back to God. Today, the road sign is clear. Like Jonah, we all stare up at the arrows pointing in opposite directions. One way says, the land of the prideful. I told you so, judgment. It points down a broad, well-paved superhighway. And there are a lot of folks on that road. The other sign says, Nineveh. And the road there is going to be rough. There are potholes, broken guardrails, and hairpin turns, but the traffic is light. The road is never crowded with travelers. 
goes in the other direction. It goes beyond the wall, and you must choose which way to go. Let us pray. Lord, show us the way to go, and we will follow. Being called a Christian means we try to do as you did, and you never chose the course of least resistance. Help us journey the road of your will and love the ones you love. Forgive our hearty pride that forgets your mercy to us, and may we love others in your name. Amen. Well, this is the podcast from Dr. Chuck McGassey, pastor of First Baptist Church, Madison, North Carolina. I am currently on retreat. I am at the beautiful retreat center of St. Francis Springs Prayer Center, located in Stoneville, North Carolina, along with other pastors from Cooperative Baptist Fellowship who are enjoying a time of study and reflection. I'm nearly done. I'll be returning back to my duties later this afternoon, but I wanted to take this opportunity to uh, uh, to publish the latest sermon that's coming up. This will be for Sunday, the uh, 28th of January. That's uh, maybe significant, but not as significant as the date of the church calendar, which will be the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. Uh, this particular sermon uh, is from the first letter to the Corinthians, the eighth chapter, verses 1 through 13, and it is entitled, Finding Our Way Together. First, let me begin by reading the passage, which was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And I will share with you a little bit more about that church and their struggles. But first, here the reading of the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat, lest I may make my brother stumble. 
I have been told by Tony, who keeps up with such things, that a survey of adult males recently revealed an interesting thing. The response to the question, do you ever think about the Roman Empire and how often revealed that a surprising number of men do think about the meaning of Roman history and what is more, a surprising number actually think about it on a daily basis. Of course, Tony already knew that this was true for me, but she might have been thrown off by others of my sex who also find this topic quite engaging. Now, I have a pretty good excuse for my deep interest in Roman history. You see, so much of our Bible is set in a world justifiably nicknamed the Roman Lake. Those who know anything about the ancient Romans know that they succeeded in large part because they emulated other cultures. For instance, we use the word Greco-Roman to indicate how they borrowed ideas from the Greeks. The Greeks, however, were not the only culture they copied. Rome also became a sea power. Their models were the Phoenicians. Rather recent discoveries have shown just how amazing were Roman sailors. Less than 15 years ago, it was discovered that Roman ships had sailed as far as the Canary Islands. The Canaries, in case you do not have a globe handy, are located in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And what to me is even more intriguing is that cargo of Roman merchant ships has been found in the waters off Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. This, of course, does not confirm that Romans made it to South America. Perhaps only their ships were wrecked there by a hurricane. There is, though, an interesting mosaic found in the city ruined by the explosion of Vesuvius, Pompeii. This mosaic revealed last century depicts a bowl of fruit, and in that bowl was a pineapple. Pineapples, by the way, originate and were introduced to the world from South America. Now, all of this is interesting stuff if you were a reader of the Bible, in particular the epistles to the Corinthian church. You see, that city was a Greek city that fell under Roman influence. Roman sea power made it more than a port town by an ingenious ship railway that lifted vessels over a mountain pass, saving weeks of transport time. It was at the time as important as the Suez or Panama Canal is today. It made Corinth a fitting place for a mixing of cultures and ideas, a place where a church was likely to be very diverse. In the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day, there existed a society built around a pantheon of gods. Most of us studied about these gods in school. We read the mythologies of Zeus, Hera, Artemis, and a whole host of other gods and demigods and goddesses who occupied the clouds of Mount Olympus. Perhaps you, like me, thrilled at the stories of Athena, Poseidon, and Heracles. I'm grateful for the background my public school education provided me in learning about this fascinating religion of the ancient world. One thing my education did not do, though, was inform me about just how the religion interacted with the people, how their daily lives revolved around their belief in and devotion to these deities. The Greco-Roman pantheon of gods was far more than a cute collection of stories to be enjoyed by schoolchildren. The entire society was infused with deference and even terror as individuals, families, and entire cities tried to pacify these capricious and often evil gods. The main way this was done was through a continual system of sacrifices. Sacrifices. 
Much of the food that was sold, especially meat, was sacrificed to a god or a goddess. Typically, this was only a token portion of the animal. As little as a few hairs from the head of a sacrificial animal were cut and ceremoniously laid on the brazier. The remainder was then given to the priest or government officials. They, in turn, sold the meat to the butcher shops that were conveniently located near the temples. Therefore, people who bought meat at those shops might purchase meat that had been sacrificed to an idolatrous god. Those who worshipped the god of the pagan temple believed that the entire animal was somehow blessed. And as the meat sizzled and the aroma filled the air, the ones about to dine believed that the presence of that god was truly with them. Thus, even eating became a religious experience. We know that some hosts even emphasized the fact that the fare for the evening was God-infused. Sometimes these meals were held in private homes or even a rented temple dining hall. A 2nd century papyrus invitation to dinner has been preserved that reads, Sherimon requests the company, your company at the table of the god Seraphis in the Serapium tomorrow, the 15th at 9 o'clock. The early church at Corinth, as well as other places, was composed of both Jews and Gentiles who had been deeply etched from birth with the religious teachings of their religious heritages. The Jews were taught that food was extremely important in their relationship with God. They believed in all sorts of dietary laws. Kosher laws kept them from pork and shellfish. Even the way food was prepared was restricted by Mosaic law. For them, coming into the Christian community with all those Gentile converts was particularly challenging, especially at dinner time. I mean, think about it. What if we had to struggle over serving bacon at the next family night? Well, I hope you can see the menu was a huge struggle for the early church. On the other hand, there were problems for the Gentile converts. These folks who had grown up in the Greco-Roman culture had been constantly conditioned from their earliest associations to think meat had been dedicated to a god actually ensured that the god's presence would be in their midst. It wasn't the kind of food or how it was prepared, but how it was or wasn't dedicated that made all the difference. The debate over what should and shouldn't be eaten was so intense that a Christian council called together in Jerusalem took the matter under special consideration. As a result of this meeting, an authoritative word was put out to the churches advising three restrictions on their diet. These three restrictions were far more liberal than Orthodox Jewish practice would have ever conceded, but it provided an effective compromise, a realistic way for Jewish Christians and Greco-Roman Christians to remain unified in the early church. In what can only be seen as a huge concession in the spirit of love, the Jerusalem Council requested that believers refrain from eating blood, anything that has been strangled, and food that has been sacrificed to idols. Of course, that should have been that, the issue over and out, but the Corinthians acted more like Baptists than like I like to admit. Instead of simply bowing to the Jerusalem Council's guidance, they struggled to continue uh, with the right or wrong of eating. If I might make a pun, it was for them a meaty question, something they had to chew on. Now, you could hardly blame them. They were, after all, separated by miles and culture from Jerusalem. 
Apparently, they were no more inclined to listen to the council on this matter any more than we would take orders from Rome, Nashville, or Atlanta. We hold to an autonomous form of church government, and it appears the church in Corinth did too. But that didn't make it any easier to solve their problem. The eating controversy was tearing the church apart. They needed help, and so they asked the Apostle Paul to give them his words of wisdom on the matter. Imagine the factions that formed up for the fight. Here in this corner we have the Greco-Roman Christians saved by Jesus from the terrors and temptations of polytheism. Now having met Christos, the Son of God, their lives are being changed from an old way of thinking to a brand new mind, a redeemed mind. But they are not all the way there yet. God is still changing their hearts and thinking as they gradually drop the old ways and follow a new Lord. In theological terms, they are being saved. In another corner are the Jewish believers, part of the diaspora, which means the Jews living away from their homeland. The believers of Jewish heritage have lived in ancient Roman and Greek cities for generations. Even though they are far from home, they have maintained their unity by remaining distinct from their Gentile neighbors. In diet and dress and worship, they stand apart from the pollution that would infect their faith. Yet somehow, someway, a few have heard about Yeshua. Of Nazareth. In him, their faith found its completion, its fulfillment. Through him, they find themselves now associating with the uncircumcised. The common link between them was a simple carpenter who preached the love that God has for the entire world. And yet, in another corner is a third group. These might today be called the progressives. They may have been hyphenated Jewish or Greco Roman Christians, but now they were just. Christian. The old ways of life have been thrown over for something entirely new, something that wasn't exclusively Jewish or Roman or Greek. For sure, there remained for them their heritage and love of family and national origin, but these held less and less sway over them in the light of the unfolding universality of the gospel. When it came to the old gods, they had disbelieved that they ever existed, and therefore the puny gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon had no power over their lives unless they gave that to them which they would never do. They were free because of Jesus and would never again subject themselves to the darkness of the old system. Thus it was a difficult question because each camp, the Greco-Roman Christians, the Jewish believers, and the progressives trying to follow a universal gospel, each group approached the question of what to eat from a unique perspective. As each faction emerged from their corner and argued for their position, someone could have called out, Get ready to rumble! A church fight was about to commence. Enter in this hot mess, the Apostle Paul. The Corinthian church greatly respected Paul and hoped he could bring some light on the matter. The more they had chewed on the difficulty of the question, the more complex it had become. Here is why. It was impossible to completely avoid meat sacrifice to idols in a culture dominated by idol worshipers. A Christian might be invited to a meal, perhaps his mouth watering at the tasty anticipation of dining on the meat he smelled cooking. Just before reclining to eat, he is told that the presence of the goddess is assured because the meat was dedicated at the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of erotic love. Should the Christian refuse the meal? 
upset his host and leave? Should the Christian have never even accepted the dinner invitation in the first place, knowing that things like this could easily happen? Maybe the Christian should just realize that Aphrodite doesn't really exist. Enjoy the meal and the fellowship of the one whom he might win to the Lord. It was a troubling question indeed. Their struggle did not stop there. Their individual decisions to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols affected one another. When the church met in fellowship for a meal, what assurance was there that the meat was undefiled? Furthermore, it seems that some of the Corinthian Christians who had only recently been saved from the spiritual darkness of their old religion still suspected that the presence of the gods and goddesses traveled through the smoke. Try as they may, they could not completely rely on the word of the more progressive believers that the pagan deities had no hold on them. Even if they tried, their consciences were bothered to such a degree that they risked losing their new faith in Christ and might even retreat into the darkness of their pre-redemption former days. It was on this point that Paul found a way to resolve the question. He does not rely on the instructions of the Jerusalem Council. Neither does he embrace the position of any faction. He does not personally invoke some sort of divine chain of command. Paul does not purport to be the ruler of the church. Instead, he simply asks them to resolve the matter through love. I like how commentator William Barclay worded it when he wrote, No man has any right to indulge in a pleasure or demand a liberty which may be the ruination of someone else. He may have the strength of mind and will to keep that pleasure in its proper place. That course of action may be safe enough for him, but he has not only himself to think about, he must think about the weaker brother. An indulgence which may be the ruin of someone else is not a pleasure, but a sin. Oh, there are multiple ways this might apply to the contemporary religious scene. Most often I've heard it compared to the decision a Christian makes regarding the use of alcohol when where, how, and if to indulge. But that is not the only way we might view this scripture with a modern application. This story reminds me of why I love more and more the reality TV shows that stress working together over cutthroat competition. I remember visiting in the Philippines at Subic Bay. There I encountered an indigenous population, the Negritos, who were quite different from the Filipinos. Christian missionaries had been working with these people for some time, and this story was relayed by them. There were once some missionaries who set up a croquet game in their front yard. Several of their Negrito neighbors became interested and wanted to join the fun. The missionaries explained the game and and started them out, each with a mallet and a ball. As the game progressed, the opportunity came for one of the players to take advantage of another by knocking that person's ball out of the court. A missionary explained the procedure, but his advice only puzzled his Negrito friend. Why would I want to knock his ball out of the court, he asked. You do so, so you will win the game, a missionary said. The short-statured man, clad only in a loincloth, shook his head in bewilderment. His civilized neighbor was suggesting something absurdly uncivil. Competition is generally ruled out in a hunting-gathering society where people survive not by competing with one another, but by working together. The game continued, but nobody followed the missionary's advice. When the player successfully got through all the wickets, the game was not over for him. He went back and gave aid and advice to his fellows. As the final player moved toward the last wicket, the affair was still very much a team effort. And finally, when the last wicket was played, the team shouted happily, We won! We won! Together they found a way. 
But suppose it had not gone that way. Suppose the enlightened missionaries insisted that the rules of the game do no harm and must be obeyed. The rules clearly include knocking your opponent's ball out of bounds. Of course, they would be right. No one could dispute that. But in being right, they could also be wrong. The law of love that cares more for the salvation of the Negritos than the rules of croquet demanded that they play a new way. By so doing, the missionaries not only were tending to the salvation of their friends, they were also tending to their own salvation. Put another way, the saving of oneself may not be separated from the saving of others. All Christians are inspired and challenged to care for one another's salvation. Salvation is not the solitary affair we have so long supposed. There is little room for a just Jesus and me mindset in the church modeled after the words of Paul. We must, each one of us, care for our neighbor in such a way that their relationship with God is as vital and important as our own. Only then will we understand the meaning of the gospel. Early last week, I spent two days on retreat. There in that wonderful center built by the Catholics was a reminder of how we find our way together. A quote by Henry Nouwen hung on the wall. Listen to these words as I conclude. Hospitality means the creation of a free space where a stranger can enter and become a friend. What if we saw one another in those terms? What if we practice love as the highest order? That doesn't mean we must agree on everything, but it does mean we find our way together, bound by love and propelled by the hope that in the end we will all find truth and peace. Let us pray. Lord, Help us to so care for our own salvation that we will not be able to neglect the salvation of our neighbor. Help us follow the law of love in all we do and so prove to be your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.